Okay. Right before we start this episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon members from the month of September. You guys, my Patreon support means the world to me, just helps me keep the podcast going. So let me thank our new convert levels. And just a reminder, guys, if you are a convert, you get to introduce the podcast. So message me if you need help doing that. But first... Let me thank the Nature versus Narcissism podcast for becoming a convert, as well as Eleanor L. for becoming a convert. Thank you, guys. And now on to the episode. Welcome back to the Cult of Domesticity. I'm Courtney. If I sound tired, I accidentally deleted the episode, so I'm re-recording it late at night. So you're welcome to know how much I love you guys that I'm willing to do this. Before we start, I just wanted to remind you guys that it is spooky month, so I have brought guests on to help put out a bunch of fun, spooky episodes for you. The first one's already out thanks to Jacob from the podcast on Germany, so check it out. There'll be I believe, if everything goes to plan, quite a few more. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know. They're a little bit more work. And if you like them, I can do more episodes like that. So what is today's episode that is causing me grief? (laughs) We're going to be talking about Tammany Hall. You know, that thing you learned in high school history class about corruption and all of that and promptly forgot once you were done with the test. I'm going to do a nice overview history of this political machine and how it was started to its end. Trust me, it lasts longer than you think. We never talk about that in class. But if you are interested in learning more about it and going more in depth, I suggest you check out the Bowery Boys podcast as well as the newest book on Tammany Hall, which is Machine Made Tammany Hall and the Creation of Modern American Politics. This is by historian Terry Golway. Definitely go check it out great read. And let's get into this insane, weird story. Okay, so Tammany Hall was actually founded as the Tammany Society, the Society of St. Tammany, the Sons of St. Tammany, or the Columbian Order. It was founded in NYC. The Society was founded in New York, specifically in May 1789, but it was originally a branch of a larger society network of Tammany Societies, the first in Philadelphia in in 1772. It was developed as a club for pure Americans. Yes, even then, the name Tammany comes from Temenin, a Native American leader of the Lenape. I am going to apologize if any of those pronunciations are wrong. We're going to get even more cringy. And the society decided to pick up on a lot of Native American words, customs, calling their meeting halls a wigwam. The first Grand Sachem, Sachem, which was their leader, actually was William Mooney, who was an upholsterer on Nassau Street. It wasn't Mooney who actually created the society's constitution and mission. That would be a merchant and philanthropist named John Pintard, determined that its mission would be, quote, a political institution founded on strong Republican basis whose democratic principles will serve in some measure to correct the aristocracy of our city, end quote. He was also the one who decided on the various Native American titles in the society. Yeah, great time. So everybody loves Hamilton, the musical. Most people have probably seen it. I don't have Disney+, Plus, so I haven't seen it. But the society had the backing of the Clinton family, which in New York politics was the opposite of the Schuylers. They were enemies. The Schuylers backed the Hamiltonian Federalists, and 
we see the Livingstons, another New York prominent family, backing with the Anti-Federalists and the Society. So we have battle lines already drawn. We're a new country and we're already fighting. So because Tammany, the Tammany Society actually assisted the gover- the federal government in getting a peace treaty with the Cree- Creek Indians of Georgia and Florida, per the request of, you know, good old George Washington in 1790, they also managed to host Edmund Charles Gint in 1793, who was representative of the French Republic, you know, post-French Empire. We lost the king and queen and all that. But really where the activity picks up is in the 1790s, 1798 specifically. They become more political. They gain the attention of the Democratic Republican Aaron Burr, sir. And he wanted to use the society as a way to counteract Hamilton's society of Cincinnati. This is where Tammany Hall gets its Democratic Republican status that it will remain with for most of its lifespan, I guess. Burr uses the hall as a campaign tool during the election of 1800. There he was a campaign manager. There's a debate whether or not President John Adams would have won New York's electoral votes and re-election without this interference of Tammany Hall. So that might be the first big kind of hint at its growing political power. There was already rumors and cases of corruption at this point, mainly because the group starts feuding with a local politician, DeWitt Clinton. I know. It's what? Not almost a, well, just slightly over a decade old and it's already fighting. I get it. It's, it's a bit much. But it starts in 1802. Clinton accuses Burr of being a traitor to the Democratic Republican Party, as you do. Well, he uses, he's, DeWitt is a pawn of his uncle, George Clinton, another politician, who was jealous of Burr. So this man, old man is jealous of Burr, but he can't fight him because he's too old. So he's like, nephew, go for it. Fight him. We gotta win. So on top of Burr fighting, he has his friends also fighting the Clintons. And Matthew Davis, who's one of his friends, he would actually be the author of his biography. He was a businessman, a newspaper editor, and the Sachem Sachem of the society as well. So we see how close he's involved with people from Tammany Hall. On top of it, William P. Van Ness and John Stallworth, who Stallworth would duel DeWitt Clinton in 1802 in New Jersey, because at that point, everything was legal in New Jersey. So, But Clinton actually leaves. We see him leaving the United States Senate in 1803 to become mayor of New York City. There, he starts enforcing nepotism si- system and spoil system. So he's appointing people he likes to local city government. Tammany is like, say what? All of our influence can't match this because everybody in government is friends with Clinton. Part of it is because New Yorkers aren't very fond of Burr right now because he shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. You know that duel in New Jersey. So Tammany still supports Burr, but they slowly get pressure from the public. So they're like, no, we can't do this. Well, Burr's friend, Matthew Davis, who's become goes up and becomes pie in the society, refines Tammany Hall into a political machine in 1805. It receives a state charter as a charitable organization. He organized the General Committee of Tammany Hall. That committee would decide leadership within the Democratic Republican Party of NYC from that point onward. The end of that year, 
Clinton reaches out to his supporters of Burr. You know, they're like, we got to fight the Livingston family. Well, the Livingstons, who were led by the former New York mayor, Edward Livingston, and backed by the governor, Morgan Lewis, actually could challenge politically Clinton and his power. So Tammany Hall, Sessions, agree to meet with Clinton in secret in February 1806. They're like, okay, we'll back you, but you have to acknowledge Aaron Burr as a Democratic Republican. And please, dear God, stop using Burrism as a reason to reject our ideas for the city. Clinton was like, oh, sure, 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 sure crossing his fingers behind his back. The Sackhams cut wind of this and the feud just continued. My, they're not even that old of a like a political organization, maybe almost two decades old, and they're in this crazy feud. They became the local organization dedicated to stopping Clinton and Federalists from gaining power or foothold in New York City. But the local Democratic Republicans are like, uh, I don't know. And they start turning away from the, the society. From 1806 to 1809, the public opinion actually forced a local council to crack down on the society. There they found quite a few of the officials were guilty of embezzlement and illegal activity, such as Benjamin Romaine, who used his power to acquire land without payment. He got taken away from his office as city comptroller, even as like his party controlled the council. Well, after this, the Federalists sweep the state legislature. And the Democratic Republicans barely hold on to their majority in local government in New York. Matthew Davis goes, okay, we need to fit, get some money and get some clout. So they were like, okay, Sackums, come here, come here, come here. Let's do this PR stunt. They knew some shallow graves of revolutionary so- soldiers who died on British prison ships near what is now the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So he was like, Everyone, we are going to, as a society, provide proper burial for these soldiers and a monument on the land dedicated to them. We're going to donate the land as well. They lead a flotilla. So they lead a parade of boats in April 1808. 13 boats to Brooklyn. Each has a symbolic coffin. They have a dedication ceremony. The state actually voted to provide Tammany with $1,000 to build the monument. So I know you're wondering, like I always do, what would that be in 2020 money? $20,628. So it's it's a nice little chump of change that they gave them. You know, let's just say they gave them $20,000 for this monument. They're like, here you go. It's a lot of money. Yeah, that monument was never built. (laughs) And the society pocketed that money. They're like, thank you for that. But they didn't fix, you know, their corruption problem at this time as well. One of the chiefs at this time, Wartman, created a committee and he was like, okay, we're going to get one member of each of the wards that would investigate, report in on general meetings, who were friends or who were enemies. Fair. Around the same time, their feud, which Clinton's party is called Clintonites, gets even crazier. They're getting more intense, attacking each other. So one of the Clintonites, his name was James Teatham, basically started doing exposés, writing about Tammany, corrupt activities, and he had a position as state printer. So he would use that power and then publish all his work in a newspaper called The American Citizen. Tammany was like, "Mm, I don't don't like this. Teatham, Teatham was removed from his position as state printer then because of Tammany. Clinton is like, okay, we need to start working together. We can get a state. New York could be dominated, taken over, run 
by Democratic Republicans. Let's get on this. We're the two most powerful parties. So he's trying to persuade them. He goes, okay, I won't support Cheatham, who is his protege. And Cheatham was like, say what, bitch? Oh, you're not going to be friends. You're not going to support me anymore. So he, he, he did the petty bitch way and released all the details of Tammany and Clinton's attempts to cooperate and control the state. You know where that first meeting where Clinton backed out of it and said, oh, I'm going to do this and then didn't. No, he released that. Any attempts, he was like, I was there. I was in the room where it happened. Here's here's the receipts. Interestingly, James Cheatham died of an attack on September in September 1810. It may or may not have been Tammany Hall related. I mean, we who's to say? Who's to say that they had him murdered because he released all their secrets? Well, Tammany Hall decides between 1809 and 1815 that they need to accept immigrants and that'll help them to build up. So they secretly built a new meeting hall and this would hold meetings where the new Sachems were named. The new leaders were made. I'm not going to keep saying it. It's a, it's offensive. It probably was at the time, but I'm not going to judge them. I view it as offensive now. On top of it, they have that Democratic-Republican committee. They they form a new committee and they're like, okay, we're going to get the most influential local members who would also name new leaders for Tammany Hall as well, new heads of different wards and such. Well, the Clintonite feud is still going on as well. DeWitt Clinton goes, I'm going to run for president in 1811. Tammany Hall goes, he's treasonous to his party. How dare he? He's trying to create a family aristocracy and all of this. Just so upset. Think of if it was a Bravo reality show, like that level of pettiness. Well, New York State did vote for him in the presidential election, but the Republicans were like, he's exactly what Tammany Hall's told him to be. And most of the Republicans in New York, these are Democratic Republicans, turn away from Clinton. Additionally, Tammany Hall wins itself support from the people by helping out in the War of 1812, supporting the Embargo Act, and this gets some new members who are like, oh, they support the war, this valiant war. I want to be part of that organization. And, you know, it brings in people from across the aisle. So the Federalists are starting to join this Democratic-Republican society, basically. And thankfully, around this time, the Native American titles are disused mainly because there were attacks from Native Americans on white Americans. It's not for them realizing, hey, we probably shouldn't adapt um, other cultures and use them for our political societies. It was like, no, they attacked white people. And, you know, as bad as the reason that is, I'm glad they stopped. Additionally, at this time, the hall develops one of its more interesting tactics and keeps it alive for long. It would turn support away from other parties and reward its new members. You thought Tammany Hall's fight with Clinton was over? <laughs> no. 1817, after Tammany defeats DeWitt in a mayoral election, he comes back. So DeWitt Clinton worked on the Erie Canal Project, very successful. He also gained more support from that, even though he was weakened after the war and Tammany's efforts to take him down. So he actually gets elected to the governor of New York. And Tammany was like, shit, as their status falls again. Additionally, DeWitt realizes he needs to get the patronage of immigrants. That's what's going to give him support. Remember, the Society of Tammany, St. Tammany and all that, 
was really focused on representing the pure Native Americans. So, you know, white Europeans, mostly Northern Europeans, like the British and such. (laughs) The Scottish, anything buddy from the UK, minus the Irish. There's issues. We can talk about it later. But they dismissed immigrants coming from Ireland and Germany. And really, in 1817, there's so much discontent for the distreatment of immigrants. There's a riot in in a general committee session, which is crazy when we think of how we know Tammany Hall. But interestingly, Martin Van Buren and his Albany group begin to control the policy in Tammany Hall. And there he pushed for state reform that ended up having the right to vote within the state to all free white men in 1821. So yay, good thing. This is where Tammany was like, oh, we can use this. They begin to accept Irish members. And really, this is where they're going to start getting this powerhouse. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But this is the Tammany Hall you learn about in your high school history class. So our good friend Clinton, he actually would remain the governor of New York until 1828. There was a two-year period where he wasn't, but he dies in 1828 and he significantly lowered Tammany Hall's power. They work with our one of our most interesting presidents, Andrew Jackson, during the 1828 presidential election. They're like, we'll endorse you, but we need some control over who gets what federal jobs. And I'm pretty sure they gave him a list, but he goes, yeah, why not? He f- he actually says he lets them do it. And we see after 1829, Tammany Hall actually become the Democratic Party affiliate in the city. And they would control most of New York City elections after this. Well, as we know, with all, if there's only two parties, there's always sub-factions of the parties. One sub-faction in the 1830s were the Foco Locos, which such an interesting name and does sound like a four loco. It was an anti-monopoly and pro-labor faction of Democratic Party, so same party. And they would become their main, Tammany Hall's main rival for votes within their demographic, whereas their real political opponent was the Whigs based off of a British political group that supported the king and the aristocracy. It goes back to the glory, well, it goes back to one of the revolutions where with Charles the sec- first and second. So we're not going to talk about it. It's a lot. We see in the 1834 New York mayoral election, this is the first time in the city that the mayor is elected by popular vote. And Tammany Hall and the Whigs are like battling out like the sharks and the jets in West Side Story, like searching the streets for some votes, protecting their polling locations and trying to keep the opposition voters from coming to vote. We know they did this because we have proof the rival Whig party actually imported voters. We know they did this because during the 1838 election for governor, the Whig party imported voters from Philly to New York paying them $22 a head for votes to pay like to go vote at their rolling voting locations. That's first of all, that's insane. I'm pretty sure it's like 50 to 100 bucks now or something like that. But still, could you imagine? <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Tammany Hall let their society members pay uh pay prisoners of the almshouse for votes. They would pay for votes at their polling places. Really corrupt shit, okay? There were a lot less checks and balances than there are now. All the way to the 1840s, Tammany is expanding its political control, earning the loyalty of the city's new and growing immigrant community. 
So this is their political capital. They want those immigrant votes. That's their demographic that's going to keep them powerful. And they want them loyal for generations. This was mainly done through their ward bosses, which was the local vote gatherer and who could provide some patronage to people. And really, for New York City, a ward was the smallest political unit started in 1686. So it's a long-lasting delineation and it's kind of amazing it lasted that long. It was developed by the Donegan Charter, which divided the city into six wards and created the Common Council, which we'll hear a lot about, where it was each ward elected an alderman and an assistant alderman. And they had different positions to run, like different tasks to run the city and make sure everything's going well. Well, by this point, In 1821, it had expanded its authority, so it would elect the city's mayor. And before that, the mayor had been appointed by the state government. And we see now, in 1834, the state's constitution was amended to make the city mayor elected by popular vote, probably because of all the corruption. Well, who was that first mayor? Cornelius Van Vyck Lawrence, who was a pro-Tammany Democrat. And, I mean, good for him. But you have to remember, 1840s, like, and leading up to it, we have a large new population of Irishmen coming to New York City. What are they doing? Escaping the potato famine. So we're going to see Tammany's power just explode with this because they get a new base. Okay. How do they get the Irish and the immigrants on their side? Obviously, political sport for patronage. We'll get into more of what that means in a bit. But these political machines would actually provide basic and very primitive welfare systems. So before the New Deal, this is what you got. So be real grateful for what we have now and protect it. The latter half of the 1810s, immigrants aren't allowed into Tammany Hall, but There was a protest by Irish militants in 1817. They invade several Tammany offices and the members of the hall realize, hey, they probably have, you know, good influence and they'll probably only grow. So by the 1820s, they're like, okay, please come be members. But unlike the Irish, the German immigrants just as, well, probably not as large, especially during famine years, but still they're coming over and large numbers and they're present in the city they are not the germans are not actively trying to participate in these cities politics and the irish really become more influential during the mid 1880s and the 1850s because of the potato famine where it hits really hard in the 1850s and i will eventually cover it but not today so By 1850, more than 130,000 immigrants, Irish immigrants, are living in New York City. When they arrive, they're not doing great. Let's say that. They're pretty impoverished, probably pretty hungry. The Irish potato famine's a hot mess as well. Tammany Hall sometimes would meet them at the docks and provide help them get employment, shelter, citizenship. They received a different welcome than previous Irish immigrants. And... You know, Tammany Hall definitely saw that there were a lot of them showing up. Meanwhile, the Whig Party doesn't view them as a source of political power. They are like, nope, 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 nope. These are alien interlopers, foreigners. They shouldn't be taking part in our political system, which is against this ideal that America is the melting pot. A stew, if you will, where the best parts are the little differences and textures and tastes. 
Additionally, they didn't like that they were Catholic. Because, oh, how could the Catholics understand this Protestant, anglicized idea of liberty and democracy and living? Yeah, it's real fun. And you wonder why we've only had one Catholic president. It's a nice sip of tea there. So the Democrats realize, you know, if we help them out, they might show their appreciation through votes. And it could be. We see this further on, really, where Tammany does things to help support reform and helping its base, such as in 1913, they helped encourage New York to pass factory reforms. But, you know, you have like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire where the factory caught fire and the workers couldn't get out and a lot of people died. We're going to also cover that eventually. But they pushed through to get sprinklers and much more like workplace reforms such as unemployment compensation the start of a minimum wage we see you know new york passing a law that employers have to give employees one day of rest for every seven so the start of a weekend and breaks the minimum wage was actually established as two dollars a day for some state workers some servers are still making that feels like you know and tammany used their power to get these through an extra precautions for workers because workers are voters back to the irish they start taking advantages of these new irish immigrants to gather votes so five years later 1855 34 percent of new york city's voters eligible voters were irish immigrants and we see that tammany hall's ethnic base becomes more irish as you expected as well as their political influence growing in New York. Additionally, they helped bring Irish immigrants and other immigrants into Americanized society. They helped them understand the political institutions and how to become naturalized citizens, such as in Boss Tweed's reign, he developed naturalization committees. These were made up of society politicians, employees, and they would help them fill out paperwork, provide witnesses, lend them money for the fees to get them to become citizens. You know, it looks like they're just doing a good thing. They also bribed or compelled judges and officials to go along with the committees. So it wasn't all, oh, we're just here out of the goodness of our heart and we're going to just do this the straightforward way. But these new citizens uh, most likely would vote for Tammany Hall candidates. So by really 1854, this immigrant support made it the political organization machine in New York City which was has always been a powerful city in the country. We really see Fernando Wood's election as mayor in 1854 just be the starting point of the domination. And we will get to that in a minute. Wood was kind of like their golden boy in the 1840s. He loses a congressional run and he goes, I'm going to go work on my businesses. So there's a power vacuum in Tammany Hall and we get... You know, a good old fight that we haven't gotten since the founding of this organization. And it literally is gangs. There are gangs. This is where Gangs of New York comes into play. Yeah, we're talking about a lot of... We got started with Alexander Hamilton. We're moved to Gangs of New York. We can all just have a good time watching these movies and shows. So what gangs do we have? We have the Dead Rabbits, the Bowery Boys, Mike Walsh's Spartan Society, the Roach Guards, the Pug Uglies. Personally, love the name. The Wide Awakes, 
and Captain Isaiah Ryder's Empire Club. So Ryder's is actually a leader of Timothy Hall's Sixth Ward. He's on the general committee and most people kind of feel like he was responsible for all the political related gang activity and like organizing it. So where are they doing this? Most of them worked out of saloons. And around this time, we also have a lot of temperance or anti-alcohol movements going on in the country. So prohibitionists are upset. Reformers are upset. They're like, there's violence coming out of that saloon. And then the temperance movement, which were mostly middle class women, were like, there is alcohol there and people are getting hurt. So it makes it hard for Tammy to function somewhat when people are fighting at their locations. Also, there's physically fighting between gangs. But we see the economy pick up in the 1850s. And, you know, Tammany Hall members benefit because they have a lot of stake in the game. Additionally, the city council is one of the most corrupt councils up to this time. Might have been because in 1852, there was a complete flip of the council to, from Whig members to Tammany Hall politicians. So it's a 40-member council because you have 20 aldermen, 20 assistant aldermen, and this would become known as the 40 Thieves. And I'm loving the naming right now because if you think about it, each alderman can appoint police, which would include precinct officers, like voting in that area, and licensed saloons within your district. Okay, that's a lot of power. Additionally, altogether, they can grant franchises for streetcar lines and ferries. Each alderman also was required to sit as a judge in criminal courts, would also determine who sat for juries and what cases would be on trial. That's a lot of fucking power. I'm not going to lie. For one man, you control the police, saloons, streetcars, ferries, criminal courts, and you're receiving no pay, technically. That's the key thing. Technically, you get no pay. Well, <laughs> someone noticed that there were quite a few real estate deals that would get followed by some transactions, you know, specifically a burial, a pauper's burial ground on Ward Island. There was also city property occupying Gaines Fort Market that were sold to an associate of James B. Taylor and a friend of many of the aldermen. They're like, that's a little weird. There was also deals for expensive fireworks display, openly known for bribery of, for ferry and railroad operations. I, I do enjoy this one. It, it feels familiar. The aldermen would write legislation to get money. So this is how they would do it. They would write a fake bill, introduce it that would specifically harm someone's business who could complain to legislatures and they were like, oh, you know, we'll kill this bill, but we need we need some reassurances. And the reassurances would be a fee. <laughs> so they would create this problem for a person to get extort money out of them. Well, the press becomes aware of these tactics and this incites a reform movement and ch it causes changes in the city charter in 1853. So... You know, city work and contracts are are given to the lowest bidder. Franchises are awarded to the highest bidder. And supposedly bribery is punished harshly. We've gotten back to our friend, Fernando Wood. So beginning in the 1830s, he's starting a bunch of small businesses. 
This is where he gets involved with Tammany, the society. While he fails in these early businesses, he does, by the age of 24, become a member of the society, and he's actually known for solving the dispute between the Locofocos, you know, their Democratic-Republican rivals, and the conservative members of the society. He gets put up in 1840 as for a seat in Congress. He wins. He becomes successful in business, really in real estate. He gets elected to the mayor in New York City in 1854. We see in his first term in mayor, he really makes sure the police respond to what he needs, what he desires, while getting the power to fire officers that don't perform their duties to his satisfaction, which probably means they don't want to do what he wants them to do. Well, then he gets accused of hiring only Democrats to replace those fired officers. Like, oh, I wouldn't do that. He runs again for mayor in 1856 which wasn't really done before. Well, remember, he's mayor and he uses his police force as henchmen during the campaign while taking some of their salary for his war chest, which can I please get a war chest? I don't know what I would put in it, but I would just like a chest to label my war chest. This could be as much as $25 too in that time. That's a lot of money. He politely gave the policeman time off to vote on election day while having the Dead Rabbits gang protect polling places. Did he win re-election? Yes, he did. Well, the Republicans won upstate and they were like, okay, this is not cool that all of this power in one of our most powerful city is in one person. So they rewrite the state charter for the city, which included having more elected city department heads and officers rather than them being appointed by the mayor. Seems fair. Additionally, they brought together a separate police force consolidated of a smaller police forces, the Kings, Richmond, and Westchester counties, to become the Metropolitan Police. They also moved the mayoral elections to odd years. Well, he just got elected, you know, in 56, so that would mean the next election is the next year. Well, we see a power struggle coming out of this. You have the Municipal Police under Wood and the Metropolitan Police under the Republicans or Independent supposedly, fighting on top of the dead rabbits fighting the Bowery Boys, which are nativists, which are, oh, you have to be born in the country and be Anglican and all of that. Meanwhile, because of this, Tammany goes, we're not putting you up for re-election in 57. Mainly there was a panic, like an economic panic. There was the scandal involving him and his brother. So Wood goes, I'm going to form my own party, motherfuckers. He forms Mozart's Hall Democracy or the Mozart's Hall in response to Tammany not putting him up. Well, then we get to everybody's most well-known friend, William M. Tweed or Boss Tweed, who would run this political machine through corruption and efficiency and giving of patronage and having people, you know, work for him. He really begins tightening control over the city. He would use effort of reformers to gain power. He would gain a position on the county board of supervisors and get that to like get to other appointments and put his friends in various offices. But first, let's discuss who Boss Tweed is. He was born William Manger Tweed in April 1823 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He ended up marrying Mary Jane Scadden in 1844. And by 1848, he actually organized a local fire department because remember, those were all locally organized until pretty recently. 
1850, he ran for city alderman, but lost. He tried again a year later and won. So, you know, he actually gets elected to Congress in 1852. Not a very remarkable term, but he did make it. Meanwhile, back in New York, his influence is growing. And we see this when he's elected to the Board of Supervisors for the city in 1856, which, of course, he loves to use for his purposes. Quote, I don't care who does the electing, so as long as I get to do the nominating. Which, damn, that says a lot. (laughs) You can pick between my select choices because my choices are right and it will be beneficial for me. He's strengthens his hold on Tammany Hall, and we see by 1860 he will control all of the Democratic Party nominations for the city, which is insane (laughs) to think of one man having that power. Really, his candidates were elected mayor of New York, governor of New York, and the speaker of the state assembly. While he's also putting his friends in key city and county posts and would establish this network of corruption, which we all know now is the Tweed Ring. He also opens a law office in 1860. He's not a lawyer. He has no legal degree. He has no right to have a law office, except for he gets large payments from various corporations for his quote-unquote legal services, but that really is just his extortion and money laundering office. We know he has a lot of illegal cash, so he starts buying up real estate because then it looks legal, right? Well, in 1868, he becomes the leader of Tammany Hall and is elected to New York State Senate. Additionally, in 1870, so two years later, they manage to get a hold of the city treasury where they pass a new charter for the city, naming them as the Board of Audit. So basically, Tweed has the power to bankrupt the city of New York by 1870, and we really see him only heavily starting in the mid-1850s, so maybe, let's say, generously 15 years it takes him to do this. So don't give up on your dreams, guys. Just probably don't have that dream. Really, they just begin to drain New York City finances. They use fake leases, false vouchers, they pad their bills to the city, and have a bunch of other schemes set up to really get money from the city's coffers into theirs. We see their activities ramping up and there's an estimate of between 30 to 200 million dollars taken. And that's present day dollars, which is insane. Could you imagine if New York City was like, yeah, we just lost 200 million dollars. Then again, the Pentagon and that during the Iraq war lost a couple billion. So the public begins to pick up on this with the efforts of the New York Times and Thomas Nass, who was a political satirist for Harper's Weekly. So between those two efforts, the public turns on Tammany Hall and Tweed. He gets ousted. They manage to get him tried and convicted on the charges of forgery and larceny in 1873. So from the time they get control of the city treasury to the time he gets charged is three years. So it's been about 20 years since he's really started his career in Tammany Hall and he manages to take millions. But that's not the end of his story. So he's released in 75. So two years later, New York State filed then a civil suit against him to try to get some of the millions that were embezzled. He gets arrested, but escapes, flees to Cuba, then goes, nah, let's go to Spain. It's a bit farther away. They manage to 
get him in November 1876. So only about a year later, take him back to the U.S. They put him in a New York City jail, but by 1877-78, he actually dies of pneumonia. He had a pretty severe case because prisons back then weren't great. (laughs) Just imagine the disease. Well, Tammany Hall had to recover from this. What do you do when your leader is put in jail for embezzling from the city? Well, they had to do a general house clearing. The society selected the former county sheriff, Honest John Kelly, as their new leader. He wasn't involved with tweed scandals. He was pretty religious. He was related by marriage to one of the archbishops, so he looked pretty good. He cleared the society of tweeds people, tightened the leader's control over the hierarchy, and really, by 1874, shortly after Tweed is in prison the first time, he manages to get the Tammany candidate to defeat the unpopular incumbent. And most of the Democrats won their races. So Tammany Hall controls the city again. We see in 1892, Charles Henry Parkhurst, a Protestant minister, really go and start denouncing Tammany Hall. And this will lead to a grand jury investigation, the Lennox Committee, which was a state probe into police corruption in New York City. It was chaired by state senator Clarence Lennox. And we see this actually result in the election of a reform mayor in 94. We see Tammany managing to survive and actually prosper in city and state politics, even though they're getting these they're starting to get these more of these defeats. They're not as strong. We see with Kelly and another leader, Richard Croker, the society controlling democratic politics in the city. They would even oppose William Jennings Bryan in 1896. He was a big reformer presidential candidate. And they start to have anti-Tammany forces pushing forward the reformer and a Republican, Seth Lowe, to become mayor in 1901. So they're starting to have a bigger coalition against them. And Meanwhile, Tammany is actually having a resurgence because of its new boss, Charles F. Murphy. He really tried to change the image and do more social welfare programs and have more of a code to the city, to Tammany Hall. But that ends with his death in 1924. Really, we see less than a decade later in 32, the society is going to suffer a major blow when their mayor James Walker is forced from office, and the man who had kind of become their enemy, a governor, get elected president. Who would that be? FDR. <laughs> FDR had started looking into all of the corruption and all the problems that they had as when he was governor right around the Depression, and he's elected president. So your enemy is now in the highest office of the land. <laughs> he would strip Tammany Hall of its federal patronage, which... I mean, remember, he implemented the New Deal, which gave a lot more federal patronage to these societies to help people. And he moved it from actual Tammany Hall to one of their bosses in the Bronx, Ed Flynn. So he was like, "Okay, city patronage is going to you because he was their former bosses, Murphy's protege. So he ran more anti-corrupt and more social welfare programs than the main Tammany Hall. We really see this with the election of LaGuardia. So, and FDR is actually helping the Republican Foriello LaGuardia to become mayor on a combined ticket. So, he's 
removing even further power and patronage from the society. LaGuardia manages to get elected in 1933. He reorganizes the city cabinet by putting nonpartisan officials. He's trying to develop a clean and honest city government, which after probably 50 years of Tammany, really heavy Tammany influence, has got to be hard. Interestingly, one of the Tammany aldermen died in December 1933. The Board of Aldermen reconvened in January next year, but defied its leadership, so all the Tammany Hall people, and actually elected one of LaGuardia's allies to be the successor. Well, the Bronx leader, Augustus Pierce, actually collapsed and died of a heart attack because of this decision in the chambers. I mean, how shocked are you? I guess it hadn't been done in so long that they were like, oh, he's like, oh. LaGuardia also managed to have a new city charter adopted, which would require a proportional representation method of electing members to the city council. This won a referendum in 36, which, if you think about it, tells how much the people wanted change. It goes into effect in 38. This eliminates the ward system that had been in place with the aldermen and that had only allowed remember 40 people max to serve and that had been in place since 1686 well now they determined there was a new 26 member council and it would have certain functions governed by a board of estimate he meant so the mayor manages to fill the board of magistrates and any really long-term appointed office really just making Tammany's Hall's influence be so diminished from the power it had entered this century in. <laughs> it had been at the height of its power, and now it's struggling to get by. Additionally, the number of city jobs awarded by the civil service system had gone up by a fourth to be about three quarters required a civil service exam. In 37, LaGuardia actually gets reelected, and he would be the first ever anti-Tammany reform mayor to do so. He would be reelected in 41 and decided to retire in 45. He really kind of was one of the death tolls in Tammany Hall's coffin. <laughs> well, this really el starts eliminating as their power, especially with the creation of relief programs. You know, remember with the immigrants, Tammany Hall would use government contracts, jobs, patronage, corruption, welfare programs to swing votes. Well, you have around 40, the decline of the relief programs, which had been created by FDR and, you know, the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps would employ families and all of that. And it really took away what Tammany Hall could do, especially because FDR wasn't giving them the patronage, so they weren't in charge of who got what. The, one of the last bosses would be Congressman Christopher Sullivan. While he tried to recover it, it they tried to stage this small-scale comeback in the 50s when they switched to the leadership of Carmine DiSapio, who did manage to get Robert Wagner Jr. as the mayor in 53 and Avril Harriman as state governor in 54, and he continued to block the enemies, especially, you know, FDR Jr. in a race for state attorney general. But Eleanor Roosevelt came in with a vengeance, working on a counterattack with uh, Robert Lehman and Thomas Finletter, and they would form the New York Committee for Democratic Voters, which would really just go to fight the society. They managed to remove DeSapio from power in 61, 
And without this leadership, it quickly fades and by the mid-60s disappears completely. Well, the last building that was Tammany Hall is in Union Square. It is actually now home of the New York Film Academy. So (laughs) that's the history of Tammany Hall. Corruption, fighting, and immigration throughout. It's a wild ride. And again, if you want to get more in-depth into some of these stories... I suggest you check out the book and the podcast I recommended at the beginning. But I hope you guys are having a great spooky season, and I'll see you next week. Bye! Hi, we're the hosts of the Fresh Hell podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the United States, and not just true crime, like the terrifying axe murders on Smutty Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. So if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know, and then some. Come find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. Hope to see you soon. there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. So when we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we will be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature. And getting a little bit tipsy while we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober. (laughs) On the weeks in between, we're going to be narrating and discussing folktales. Some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be modern folklore, such as no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, on Twitter at FolkloreRocks! So grab a drink, join us, and come on, let's dig deep together. Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.